0: Hello, and welcome to That Sounds Like a Plan, the podcast where we talk about all things related to nonprofit fundraising events. I want to give a quick shout out to some of my listeners from Ashburn and Goodview, Georgia, San Mateo and Long Beach, California, Staten Island, New York, Barrington, Illinois, Longwood, Florida, Vancouver, BC, London, England and of course, my loyal listeners from Minnesota and Frankfurt, Germany. If you're new to the show, I wanna extend a warm welcome. I'm your host, Alicia Barga. I've been planning nonprofit events since 2010. Planning a fundraising or awareness building event takes a team. Today, we're going to talk about the typical structure of a planning or steering committee. When you should or shouldn't have co-chairs, which roles should be filled by staff, and how how to match the person to the role. I also have a free resource that is going to save you hours of time and help you recruit team members. So stick with me until the end and I'll tell you how to get this freebie that will help you put together your planning team. So let's get started. In episode 20 of this podcast, I cover event volunteer basics. Today, we're going to talk a little more in depth about the steering or planning committee. This is your core planning team. These are the individuals that can arguably have the most impact on your event. We're going to cover the basics of putting together your planning team, such as the typical structure of the team, when you should and shouldn't have co-chairs, which roles should go to organizational staff, and how to match the person to the role. Lastly, I want to talk about what not to do with your volunteers so that you can hopefully keep them around for a while. Okay, let's dive in and talk about the typical structure of the steering committee. The steering committee or planning team should consist of an overall chair or co-chair plus chair persons for each of the major areas of your event. For instance, for every event that you host, you should have an event chair, so your overall leader of the event, plus a sponsorship chair, if you're seeking sponsors for the event, and a marketing chair. The other chair roles will depend on the type of event you're having. You could have an entertainment chair, an auction chair, A games chair. Anything that requires an extensive amount of planning or setup at the event should have a chairperson in charge of that committee. The chairs of each committee aren't meant to do this work solo. So once your chairs have been selected, then you can add team members to each committee. And I highly recommend that the chairperson recruits and selects their own team members whenever possible. If the chairperson can't find people to be on their committee, the organization can then step in and help them recruit from their volunteer pool. However, I've found that teams function best when the chair knows and trusts their team members, and that's usually when they recruit the team members themselves. The event chair or co-chairs lead the rest of the committee. That's their role. They ensure that everything stays on time, on budget. They keep the team focused on the strategic goals and the vision for the event. So if I'm working with a client, I that's my role. I usually take on the event chair role. If you're a visual person like me, you may want to see what the structure of a committee might look like. So if you go to today's show notes, go to thatsoundslikeaplan.net find episode 31, I have an organizational chart for an example of a typical steering committee that you can view or download. There are a couple things I wanna point out about the event chair or co-chairs. Number one, I highly recommend that the person leading the event is a staff member. And I recommend this if, and this is a very big if, that person possesses the skills and abilities of a chair, which I'm going to talk about those in a little bit. If you don't have a staff member who would be a good fit for this role, it's important to recruit a volunteer who does fit the role. This is not a matter of just finding someone because you or your staff don't have the time to do it. There's a lot riding on this event, and you need to recruit intentionally. There are seven qualities, skills, and traits that an event chair should have. Number one, they need to be organized. This is quite obvious, but the chair needs to be highly organized. There are a lot of details that go into planning an event, and the leader needs to be able to stay on top of them. Number two, the chair needs to have the ability to delegate. The event chair cannot, nor should they, do it all. They need to be able to delegate tasks to other team members. I have seen volunteer event chairs who try to do it all, but then when something falls through the cracks or doesn't go as planned, they make lots of excuses or then they turn around and blame it on the fact that they're doing most or all of the work. You can see how this becomes a vicious cycle. They don't delegate, but then they complain when they have to do it themselves. Not only is this harmful to the chairperson because they are going to burn out quickly, it is likely going to have a negative impact on your event. Things are going to fall through the cracks because one person can't and shouldn't be doing it. And what I've found is that you're going to have a hard time recruiting more volunteers because, one, the volunteer might look at that chairperson and go, oh, well, you don't you don't need me. That person's got it all handled. You you don't need me to volunteer. Or most often what happens is that type of person, that sort of personality that wants to take over and do it all, they tend to be a little hard to work with because they're inflexible. And so you turn off volunteers that way. So the chair needs to have the ability and willingness to delegate. Number three, the chair needs to be flexible. You've heard the saying, be stubborn on the goal, but flexible in how you get there. One of the worst things your event chair can do, aside from trying to do it all, is to micromanage the rest of the team. Now that's not to say that they should step back and be totally hands-off, but as long as the work is getting done, it shouldn't matter how it's getting done. It may not be the way that person would do it, but that's okay. That's the beauty of having a a diverse and wonderful team. Number four, the chair needs to be a relationship builder and be collaborative. Not only within the team, the event chair will need to work collaboratively with organizational staff and event vendors. Relationship building and collaboration is so important overall for a small nonprofit, but it's really important for an event. Number five, the chair needs to be great at communication. Not only does the chair need to be great at sharing information with the team, they need to be able to listen. They have to listen to ideas and feedback from the team, from guests, from vendors. Communication must be done in a respectful way. And they need to be able to listen to a variety of ideas, perspectives and feedback without getting defensive or being stubborn about wanting things done their way. Number six, the chair needs to be a problem solver and keep calm under pressure. Now, I know these are two things, but they are so intertwined that I made it one thing. Event chairs must be problem solvers. No matter how well you plan an event, down to the last minute detail, something will likely not go according to plan. When that happens, whether it's big or small, everyone's going to look to the event chair to come up with a solution. Sometimes I've I've found that when I'm working with clients and I do plan things down to the last minute detail if the tiniest thing doesn't go according to plan depending on the client it can sometimes stress them out. For instance, if I have in my show flow that the caterer is to set the salads on the tables at 6:15 p.m. and the caterer starts setting them at 6:10 I might get questions. <laughs> and being a good problem solver means you can distinguish between the big picture and things, the things that are truly going to have an impact on your event and the things that don't. A five minute difference in the salads being set, probably not a big deal. Yes, details matter, but some details only you and your planning team know about. So if those small details don't come together or are off on the timing a little bit, your audience will never know. Through all of this, the event chair needs to be able to remain calm under pressure. When five people are standing in front of them telling them about issues, whether those are perceived or real, big or small, they need to be able to prioritize, problem solve, delegate, and stay calm. Lastly, number seven, the chair needs to have a positive attitude. The leader is gonna set the tone for the group. If the event chair has a negative outlook, it's gonna bring the group down. Conversely, if the leader is genuinely excited about the event, it's gonna reflect back on everybody else. You wanna keep negative people away from your team as much as possible in general, but for sure the leader of that group needs to have a positive attitude. You might be thinking that all seven of these traits are just common sense, like you should be able to fill this role easily. Most people have these traits, You would be surprised. There are so many different personalities and leadership styles that some of these traits or skills might be lacking or even non-existent. So bottom line is just make sure you're recruiting intentionally, taking these seven traits or skills into account. You want to make sure that your event chair has them. I want to talk briefly about co-chairs. In short. I don't recommend having co-chairs. I know it seems like a great idea. Leading an event is a lot of work and two heads are better than one. Many hands make light work. Teamwork makes the dream work. All those sayings and idioms. However, in my experience, unless the co-chairs have worked together successfully on a large project in the past, having co-chairs can get messy there can be friction over who's in charge or over who's doing what if the breakdown of work hasn't been very clearly defined. Most often I've found that one of the co-chairs does the majority of work. And when that happens, there's a few scenarios. If one of the co-chairs is doing the majority of work and the other one is sort of slacking off and coming along for the ride, Um, usually the co-chairs will get equal recognition, right? They'll get praised for the work they've done. Well, that makes the person that did all the work really resentful because the other person just rode along on their coattails. Another scenario is if one person does the majority of the work and the other person wants to feel more involved, but that other person is hoarding and holding on tight and being they might have a little stronger personality and, and doing all the work, then the person who isn't getting to do the work might feel resentful because they want to do more. They just feel like they can't in some way. I saw this happen way back in my, way, way back in my PTA days. Uh, I was the PTA president when my girls were little. We were working on an event and I had two friends who had known each other for years. Got along really well, but when they it came to being in charge of a committee... And working together on an event, they had very different ideals and work styles. One of them was quieter. She was a uh, put-your-head-down-and-get-the-work-done kind of person. The other one was chatty. <laughs> she was really chatty. And so she was great at relationship building. And in defense of the person that was chatty, I I don't think she even realized that the other person didn't feel like she was not pulling her weight. The person that's putting her head down and getting the work done is doing it. Feels like she's doing everything. The other person is doing the relationship building, so they feel like they're doing everything or, you know, at least doing their part. And you can see where the where the friction comes in. Luckily, those two they're still friends to this day, but they just what they realized is that they could never work on a project together again. So, that was a good outcome. I've also seen a situation where an organization had two people who expressed an interest in the event chair role. These two people had no connection to each other prior to signing up to be part of the event, and rather than selecting one person who was the best fit for the event or doing some work to try to determine if these two could work well together, the executive director just said, hey, you know what, you two both signed up to be chair of the event, we're just going to make you co-chairs. It didn't end well. (laughs) That probably went without saying. These two had very different personalities, didn't work well together. They would complain about each other to the executive director. And if something didn't get done, they would blame the other one. The executive director, I think, thought she was making the best of a situation, but it ended up being more work for her. What she should have done was to interview both of them and see if one of them would be a better fit for the role. Just bottom line, if you can avoid having co-chairs, avoid it. There are a few roles that, in my opinion, in my experience, should be held by organization staff if possible. Number one is the event chair or the overall leader of the event. As I said, if they have those skills and traits of the event chair. Number two is the sponsorship chair, and number three is the marketing chair. For the sponsorship chair, it's really important that the person leading the sponsorship team is tied to the organization for a couple of reasons. The first is that unless that staff person is brand new, which I hope you wouldn't put a brand new staff person in charge of the sponsorship team of the event unless that person is brand new they are going to be able to answer questions about the organization much more easily and more in depth than a volunteer would would be able to second you want the sponsor to have a relationship with the organization and theoretically a staff member is going to be part of that organization longer than a volunteer therefore they would have the longevity to build that relationship with that sponsor. I've seen instances where board members or volunteers have brought in event sponsors and as soon as that board member or volunteer leaves, so does the sponsor. No matter what, no matter who brings the sponsor to the table, the organization needs to cultivate that relationship and that's why I recommend that it's a staff member who heads up the sponsorship team So they can build that relationship, and ideally, the person to take that sponsorship team lead role is either the executive director or a development director. The marketing chair should also be a staff member if possible, and it's pretty simple why. Nonprofits have year-round social media and promotional priorities outside of just this one event. If the organization has a marketing person on staff, they can easily weave the event promotion into the general promo plan for the organization. It doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't have volunteers working on either the sponsorship or the marketing committees. You absolutely should. They just shouldn't be on the steering committee as chairs of those committees. Hopefully you can see why it's really important to match the person to the role. I gave you the seven traits or skills the event chair should have, but what about the rest of the team? I'm not going to go into every single role because that would take way too much time. But what I did do is I created a download for you instead. It's a list of some of the most common chair roles and a checklist of skills and traits for each of those. You can download it and go through the checklist as you're thinking about recruiting your steering committee members so that you can find the person who's the best fit for each of those roles. Go to thatsoundslikeaplan.net and find episode number 31 for the download. Volunteering is a two way street. Yes, the volunteer is giving their time, but that doesn't mean they aren't hoping to get something out of the experience there are several reasons why people volunteer. They have a personal tie to the mission. They want to build new skills. They want to make connections, either personally or professionally. They want to do something entirely different than their day job as a way to let off steam or relax. For instance, you might have an attorney who you might think they want to volunteer their legal expertise to the organization. They might want to just come in on a Saturday morning and stuff envelopes as a way to not think about illegal things for a while. Another reason is that your volunteer might want to feel important or have a sense of purpose. As the youngest of four siblings, I can totally relate to this. I had two parents and three older siblings who essentially told me what to do my whole life. (laughs) And I found that as in high school and college and as a young adult, I would gravitate to volunteer roles, volunteer projects, where I had a leadership role. I think it was just my time to finally be in charge of something. So your volunteers' reasons for wanting to volunteer could be Any combination of these things or something else entirely. It's going to be a better experience for everyone if you know what your volunteer wants to get out of the experience and you can help deliver it. I focused a lot on what you should do when recruiting your steering committee. Let's talk about a couple of things you shouldn't do once you have your team in place. I touched on this a little bit briefly, but Number one, don't micromanage. Provide your chair with the information and tools that they need and let them do their job. You should be prepared to step in as needed or if they aren't fulfilling their duties. But if you've recruited and trained well and they're doing their job, you should just trust that they're going to get the job done. It may not be the way you would have done it, but as long as the goal is met And nothing illegal or unethical is happening in the process, who cares how it's done? Let it get done. And secondly, what you should not do is ask your volunteer for money. Now, I want to be clear on this. This doesn't mean you can't ever ask your volunteer for money, but here's a situation I, I recently came across. I read an article where a woman had responded to several requests for volunteers. She saw a post on a job board or on social media, and she submitted an online application where she listed her skills and experience. Shortly after she submitted the application, rather than someone reaching out to her about the volunteer opportunities that would match her skills and abilities, she started getting emails and calls with requests for money. There are so, so many things wrong with this and this kind of behavior really ruins it for all nonprofits. So just don't do it. What I want to say about this is it. this doesn't mean you can't ever ask your volunteer for money, but don't use recruiting to be part of a, a volunteer team or to volunteer for the event as a way to build your donor database. Number one, if you're a volunteer comes on board and they're they're passionate about the cause and they have the money to do so they're going to donate however oftentimes people will volunteer their time in lieu of money you know typically people can they can either donate their time or donate their money not often can they do both and so if a if somebody is volunteering that can sometimes mean that they don't have the funds. They want to support your organization. They don't have the funds, so they're going to donate their time. So don't use volunteer recruitment as a way to ask for money. Just don't do it. At the end of every episode, I like to give you, the listener, an action item. Because as much as I love that you're listening, if you don't take action, none of this is going to help you. For today's action item, I want you to create a process for recruiting your steering committee, just like you would take steps to hire an employee. So here are the tasks you're gonna need to do to set up a process for recruiting your planning team. Step number one, you need to create job descriptions and a set of expectations for each role. Include your list of duties for that role and the approximate time commitment. Be realistic and honest about the time commitment. Don't expect more from the person in that role than is necessary. Don't load it up with everything you need done. But also don't underestimate the time, thinking that if you put realistically what you want in this job description, that somebody looking at it is going to go, oh, heck no, that's way too much time, I'm not going to do it. Don't underestimate the time thinking you're going to lure somebody in and then all of a sudden oh psych here we go this is the real job description and real time commitment because ideally your goal is to keep your chairs for at least a few years and do you want to start off with (laughs) misinformation at best or a lie at worst you want open and honest communication as the foundation of that relationship with your volunteer Step number two, you need to create a process for the volunteer to express interest. So you've created your job descriptions. You've put these out on job boards or on social media or on your website or whatever. A volunteer reads this. They need something to do to let you know they're interested. You can use Google Form, Jot Form, any type of survey or form builder to collect information on your applicants. You're gonna wanna collect their basic information, name, contact info, but you also wanna ask them about their skills, their talents, their past experiences. Why are they applying to volunteer for this event? Why do they want a particular role or do they want a particular role and if so, why? Step number three, I would love for you to follow this process, whether you are actively recruiting for an upcoming event or not, because it's so great to have these processes in place when you need them. So even if you're not recruiting for an event, go through this. If you are recruiting for an upcoming event, now is the time you can create a list of prospects. You might have some people in mind already to fit some of these roles. But again, you want to match the person to the role. You might be just thinking of somebody that has some extra time on their hands. You got to think beyond that. Before you reach out to anyone on your list, download that checklist that I created for you so you can see if the person that you have in mind would be a good fit for, the, for any of the roles that you are looking to fill. If not, then you can start recruiting from your volunteer database or put out those feelers on volunteer job boards or on social media. Step number four, create a short list of interview questions for candidates. I know some of you are going to think this is overkill, but don't skip this part. I've seen too many organizations just take any warm body who was willing to donate their time or even to say they were willing to donate their time to the organization, and it makes the organization look desperate, which takes you from a position of strength to one of weakness. You're going to want to interview your volunteer prospects. And in order to do so, you want to create a short list of questions so that when it does come time to make a decision, you're comparing apples to apples. You want to have the same set of questions that you're asking everybody. Step number five, then, is you are going to set up interviews. This doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out interview, but you want to get to know your potential volunteer especially for something as important as a steering committee role. Get to know them. Find out their motivation behind wanting to volunteer beyond what they put on their form. Dig a little bit deeper. Are they looking to get college credit or build new skills? You want to find these things out because if it's something you can't deliver, you want to know that in advance because you're going to save yourself and that volunteer a whole lot of time if you find out right at the get-go it's not going to be a good fit. Again, you don't want to take any warm body. And again, these interviews don't have to be long. Set up 15-minute Zoom meetings. Step number six, set up a process to train your chairs if needed. Keep in mind, your volunteers are very busy people. They likely can't set aside several hours to devote to training just because you want them to. So think of ways that you can get them the information that they need in the quickest, easiest way possible, whether that's some online tools, send them brochures, whatever it is they need, but only give them the information they need to do their job. Don't bombard them with, here's the 20-year history of our organization. They probably don't need that to do their job. Just get them the basics of what they need and let them get to it. Lastly, no, step number seven is once you have secured your whole planning team, then you're going to want to set up a regularly scheduled monthly meeting via Zoom or Teams with your steering committee. Find a day and a time that works for the majority of your team. So if you have a lot of people that have day jobs, maybe a lunch hour or a breakfast or after work is going to work best, just find that time and get it on the calendar. Like For me, I have some... Meetings with clients or with committees where we meet the third Friday of the month at 830. Whatever that is, just get it on the calendar. The purpose of these meetings is for each chair to give a report of where they are in the planning process, for them to ask questions, and to seek help from the rest of the team if they need it. If there's a monthly meeting and the chair can't make it, then the expectation is that they would submit some kind of a report in writing that you or somebody from the team can give to the rest of the team so that everybody stays up to date on the big picture where everything is in the planning process. That's a lot of information I know, and I hope this information and the listener action item helps you recruit and retain your very important planning team. There's really, there's so much more I could talk about when it comes to the planning team, but my goal is to keep these episodes short. And I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. If you are feeling overwhelmed, head to That Sounds Like a Plan and find the download for episode 31 because I walk you through everything we talked about today. Now that sounds like a plan. Coming up in the next episode, we're going to talk about preparing to host an auction. Before you start asking for items for your auction, there are a number of things that you should do in advance. We're going to talk about all of these and more. I'll see you next time.